Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're taking a step back from sharing the latest genetic stories and instead asking about you, the public, what your opinions on genetics are, what you know about genetics, or perhaps more importantly, what you think you know. How much do you know about genetics? How much of what you think you know about genetics is indeed factually correct and how much of it is false? How does that affect your attitudes and opinions towards genetics? And did the pandemic change any of that? Those were the questions that the Genetic Society were hoping to answer when they commissioned a survey of the UK public last year. And just a few weeks ago, they published their first interpretations of the data, both as a press release and in the journal PLOS Biology. The results were fascinating, so to talk me through it, I sat down with one of the authors of the study, Lawrence Hurst, Professor of Evolutionary Genetics and the founding director at the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath, which researches the teaching and dissemination of science. To start off, I wanted to know how they came up with the idea of surveying the public's attitudes towards genetics. So we realised that through COVID, there was an unusual experiment going on in the sense that there was unprecedented level of science engagement. People were getting to know terms like PCR, RNA vaccines, all this sort of stuff. And we were very interested to know, okay, with this unprecedented reach of science into the public domain, is this having any effect on people's receptivity to towards genetics? So we very much treated it as a rather brilliant natural experiment, I guess. Horrible. There have to be some good things coming out of the pandemic. And some most impressive things came out of the survey. I mean, I think the the take home within the field of science communication as a whole, it's well known that it's near impossible to change people's attitudes. And one of the things that the survey discovered, which I think was really quite striking, was that trust in scientists had not simply gone up, but it had gone up over 30%. 30% of the population said they increased their trust in science. So before we go too much in depth about the results, I first want to find out how you did it. Because, I mean, as a professional science communicator myself, it's certainly the case that I am able to use words like DNA and RNA to a much wider group of people than I would normally do beforehand just because everyone's talking about it. So it's really nice to kind of get some quantitative data on whether it really is true that those terms are more understood. So who was it that you surveyed? How did you reach these people? So that's a really good question because... You could imagine just setting up a survey monkey and getting people to answer it. Now, there's a huge problem with that is that you're not pulling out a random sample of the population. And so it's much better to go through uh, a company. We selected one called Kantar Public, and they have a set of people pre-registered to undertake such surveys. They get paid a small amount to do it. And they could also make sure that the representation of these individuals was as random and as representative at the, both at the same time. And so from what we can see, the demographics of who answered this very much match the demographics of the UK public at large. So we're talking men and women, we're talking age. Well, age is a slightly awkward one because we're only allowed to do this with over 18s. But beyond over 18s, yes, it looks very representative, gender representative, political ideologies we had seem to be pretty representative as well. 
So it's an excellent way of sampling. Now, and how many people did you manage to reach? Uh, they reached a little over 2,000. So to begin with, it was kind of looking at how much does the public understand about genetics and how has all of this news reporting increased during the pandemic? How much has that increased the absolute level of understanding? So from all of the survey results, how much does the public understand about genetics? It looks to be really pretty good. So we asked a bunch of sort of factual questions, you might say. One of the striking results is that people do now, for example, understand PCR. And again, that's a really interesting one because that's something that was not on the radar, I don't think, publicly. But at the same time, one of the most striking things is we think we have met the limits of public communication because 30% said they'd never heard the term. Do you think that those people might have heard the term and not remembered it when it comes to answering the questionnaire or just somehow got through the pandemic without hearing about PCR tests? We're inclined to think that to some extent it's simply not hearing. And we do find that those who report that they don't know about it also don't seem to be engaged with science. So we ask questions about their engagement with science they're not reading newspapers to pick up science. They're not listening to the radio, et cetera, et cetera. So they're just simply, you know, there's a body of population out there who aren't engaged with science and you can do your science communication as much as you like. And I don't think you'll be able to reach them. And that's 30%, you said. Yeah, so we think because of the saturation coverage that PCR had, that if after all that coverage, and you know, your average science engagement could not possibly afford the amount of publicity that PCR has had during the pandemic. Right, we're talking prime minister's addresses, BBC One prime time, it cannot get bigger. It cannot, it cannot get bigger. There's absolutely no way it could be bigger than this. That 30% still say they don't know about it, then I think that's probably, we are getting close to the limits of what where science communication can go. So at the best, when we do science communication, we're talking to 70% of the population. Most of the time, we're probably talking to much, much less than 70% of the population. So you found that about two thirds of people had a positive attitude towards genetics. I think it's pretty good considering that genetics, as you say, is the field with stem cell technology, genetic modification and things like that. Where did you find that people are getting their genetics information from and who are they trusting to get this information from? So if you remember back, we had those sort of daily broadcasts from NHS spokesmen, governmental scientists, some university scientists and the politicians themselves. Good old so give, next slide, please. Yes, next slide, please. It's most intriguing that actually university academics come out top quite easily top, but over 80% really trusted university academics. The NHS spokesmen were trusted pretty well. The governmental scientific spokesmen were trusted very well. The government was not. And the lowest on the list was rather, interestingly, celebrities. Less than 1% say they trusted information from celebrities. So it, it sort of fits the model. Is if I think that you know what you're talking about, I will trust you. And I think uh, you haven't got any conflicts of interest, et cetera, et cetera. So there wasn't much trust in not-for-profits. I suspect they were thought to be possibly too much in the game, so to speak. But it has an interesting corollary, which we note in the paper, that uh, if you 
are doing science engagement, you're actually better off not coming from, quote, the genetic society, because then you'd be seen to have a conflict of interest, potentially, and you might be pushing something. But you're much better off badging yourself as, you know, I'm a university academic and this is what I study. And then uh, you will be trusted. Now, I want to move on to your plus B paper, because... Oh my goodness. I I admit that I am biased as a professional science communicator, but in in this paper you were really looking at who is it that has strong feelings in support of science, who is it that has strong feelings against science and kind of how does their factual understanding of science change that? So can you describe why you set up the question? So let me give you a little bit of the historical background, which I think is actually quite important to notice here. So through the 80s and 90s, the modus operandi for science communication run under what's called the deficit model. This presumes that if you want to change people's attitude, you change information. So you know, if you want to make people more positive towards GM, explain the science. If they don't like it, it's clearly because they just don't understand it, you know? That's the underlying premise of the deficit model. And that's supported by much survey work. And in fact, our survey reports the same correlation, but we think it's not causative. And that is that the people who are more approving of science typically know more. But just simple factual textbook knowledge questions like you know plants are the major source of oxygen in the atmosphere is that true or false blah 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 and another one was only gm tomatoes have genes not true and so we had just straightforward factual questions now when you look at those historically there's hundreds of surveys have been done like this you do in fine find this correlation that the folks who are more negative tend to know less and it's been mooted that that may be because if you don't understand the science, maybe you're more fearful of it. Therefore, the logic was, okay, tell people the science and you should now increase trust. And as an enterprise, that has been an unmitigated failure. In many cases, it makes it worse. In many cases, it has no effect. And there's very, very little evidence that actually telling people science changes their attitude. So in the last five years, another idea has come along. And that idea was people started looking at the most negative, the people most negative towards science. And what they found was that in a number of disciplines, so for the GM question, for the vaccine questions, it was particularly about MMR, that they found that there was a regularity, which was that when you look at their textbook knowledge, it wasn't very high. That's as we saw before. But what was high is what they thought they understood. So their self-confidence in their understanding was high. So what motivated this paper was to ask if that's much, much more general an effect. First, can we replicate those? Yes, we could replicate that effect. But we're also interested in what's going on at the other end. That's to say the people who are strongly accepting of science, are they also really confident in their understanding of science? And is it actually the case that the people who don't hold strong opinions about science actually just sort of know that they don't really know? That's a very different model to the classical deficit model, where people who don't know should be the most fearful. This is if you don't know, you're rather neutral. And the key result of the papers across all of these questions that we asked was that the strength of attitude 
was very well predicted by self-confidence about science. So people who were very supportive of science believed they understood the science. People who were very negative towards science believed that they understood the science. And the neutrals were sitting there going, I know I don't understand the science. So we think this actually makes some sort of sense. You can't really sustain a strong attitude unless you believe that you really do understand things. So it's actually quite a flip around from the deficit model. So if we were to put this in the context of, say, vaccination, we're saying that the people who are really strongly against being vaccinated and the people who are really strongly for being vaccinated both believe that they know an awful lot about the science of vaccination. Absolutely. But it so happens that if you were to actually give them a quiz on the science of vaccination, the people who are against it will do worse in their scientific knowledge, whereas the people who are for vaccines would do better in their scientific knowledge. Yeah, and that's the thing that uh, we label the objective-subjective deficit. So the idea is that you have an objective amount of knowledge and you have a subjective view of your knowledge, and there seems to be a bit of a gap with those. And when the gap is in a particular direction, they tend to be more, more negative. So we're a number of the fact questions that were particularly revealing particularly predictive, I should say. And those were the one about whether only GM crops had genes. The the negative folks tended to think that only the GM crops had genes. They tended to believe that only humans were the source of all radioactivity, so you can't get it from rocks. And they tend to believe that you could pick up genes into your own system from eating GM crops. There is a logic to that. If you think that only genetically modified foods have genes and that by eating genes, you will get them in your own genome, it is completely logical to think, therefore, GM food would be bad. No, absolutely. This is, I think, actually a really important point to make because lots of people have suggested that what we might be picking up is the so-called Dunning-Kruger effect. And in the Dunning-Kruger effect, the idea is that some people don't have the logical, rational skills to be able to know that they don't have the logical, rational skills. What we think is going on, what we argue in the paper, it's not definitive, but the fact that those questions stood out, you're absolutely right. If you think that only GM tomatoes have genes, then you can see that's a bit like a pesticide. So it's a perfectly logical inference. It just happens to be a logical inference or incorrect information. I don't think it's necessarily done in Kruger. I think it's a logical inference from incorrect information. And in absolute terms, if they've got a negative view, what is their level of science understanding and comprehension? So as it happens for the two of the questions that we asked, do you trust scientists to operate for the public good? Do you think scientific claims are exaggerated? For those two, it was only one, two percent of the population who sit in this very negative class, but they very clearly had uh, high self-confidence, as high a self-confidence as those who were strongly supportive, but very clearly the factual knowledge questions were on the average substantially lower. And in fact, for one of the questions, I think it was the hype question, the average factual knowledge was in fact the lowest in those who were most opposed It's not just low, it's actually lowest. And as a group of people, because we're talking about making sure that the demographics of the overall survey was quite balanced, are you able to say certain demographics of people are more likely to fall into this category? Yeah, important question. So we asked four questions about GM, about vaccines, about exaggeration, about trust. And what we see is that for the most part, there is only really one regularity defining the negatives, and that is that they believe they understand the science, but they don't. The demographics for those four questions turn out to be rather different. 
So for the hype and trust questions, we pick up a week, and I emphasize it's weak effects of degree of educational attainment, religiosity. And I think in the trust question, there may be slight tendencies towards being slightly more right wing, but it's actually the politics for the most part was largely relevant. No obvious effect of age for the GM. There was an effect of age. Older individuals were more likely to be anti-GM. For the vaccine question, it was quite the opposite. So when you look at it en masse, there is no simple demographic to say, ah, yes, you're one of those. You know, you're a right-wing, religious, whatever, old person, and therefore, no, it just doesn't work like that as far as we can see. The demographics are highly variable. Going back to earlier in this conversation, we were saying that about 30% of the population, science communication just isn't reaching them. Do you think that this 1% to 2% of the population who are strongly against science are within that group who aren't receiving too much science information? Or would you say they're more in that middle range of the spectrum? No, so uh, we could also ask another question, which sources do you trust for information? And it turns out that there's quite an enrichment of the none of the above do I trust within those most negative. So it's as though they're functioning as, you know, I'll discover the science for myself, which is actually an excellent attitude to have, I think, you know, really get, get into it. But if you're not going to trust anybody to provide that information, maybe there is an issue there. So I think what, one of the things we can say is that we've got nice evidence that increasing trust is indeed predictive of whether people will take the vaccine. There is some interesting information also coming out from the science communication literature, which suggests that uh, actually explaining evidence isn't necessarily useful. This is one of the most soul-destroying things, I think, for scientists. This is exactly where I was going to move on to, is this backfire effect. Because one thing I notice is that a lot of science communication professionals might not use the evidence that is out there about the most effective forms of science communication in their own practice. Because uh, it's so easy to think, if I tell people the facts, that's all they need. That's what we do. That's what yeah. we revert to. We revert to a null mode. I'm going to tell you the facts. And... Yeah. If I want people to increase their understanding of, say, genetics, I'll tell them more facts about genetics. But here you've identified a group of people who think that they already have a high level of understanding. How on earth can you reach people who think they already know it all, but have it wrong without causing this backfire effect, which I'm sure you can explain better than I can, but I understand as if you tell someone they're wrong, it's like they're being attacked. It's like, no, I know my way. You've got your facts, but you saying that this thing is different actually solidifies my own beliefs, even if those beliefs are wrong. There, there is quite a move, I have to say, to think that what we're not doing is addressing what you might call the silent majority. So we, we do have this great f focus on this. As I said, in our survey is 1-2%. For the GM anti-GM question, it was 5%. That's the minority. And to some extent, it might be very, very hard to talk to individuals who believe that they're experts but don't know very much. So I think there's quite a move afoot to say, okay, we can't reach them, but there's this other large population and in fact, one of the most striking things that came out of our survey is we asked them, did they want to hear more about science? Is there about enough? Or did they think there was too much? Over 40%, very nearly 50% said they wanted to hear more, more science. And one of the big takes is we're at an unusual position now. The trust in genetics, the trust in science has gone up because of the pandemic. People want to hear more about science. 
But I think these debates tend then to focus on this 1-2% most negative. I think we should be thinking much more about how can we address the 98% who are actually much more open. And some of those we're never going to get to, as we see from the PCR, we think we found some sort of limits. But that probably means there's 70% of the population out there, many of which want to hear more about science, many of which are really open to it. And COVID has sort of opened their eyes and increased their trust in what we are saying. So... And this extent of increase in trust, I can't emphasize enough, is absolutely exceptional. We've never seen anything like this before. When it comes to science communication, I actually we're making some progress on how to communicate consensus science. And it turns out telling people the evidence doesn't help very much. But telling people what the consensus is really does. So if you're talking about consensus science, often the best thing to do is start by saying 97% of climate change scientists agree. That statement in and of itself seems to psychologically unlock doors for many people going, okay, if I'm going to object to this, what do I know that's superior to these climate change scientists who really have studied it? And you might have noticed, do you remember those old cat food adverts? Eight out of 10 owners said their cats approved of. It's it's always nine out of 10 dentists. I want to know what that one dentist does because it's always nine out of 10 dentists. Yes. So this is the communication strategy for consensus science, which is very much emerging at the moment, which is very much focus on what the consensus is. And it does seem to be that there's this sort of gateway effect of just telling people that uh, the majority opinion, the strong majority opinion uh, among scientists is that this is real. Do you think that's because we're a social species? So we just want to believe what everyone else believes. We don't want to be the odd one out. There is evidence, particularly in school kids, that individuals like to adopt the dominant attitudes of those around them. In a sense, majority verdicts end up being contagious. That's all well and good for consensus science. The challenge in something like COVID is different because the the science was rapidly moving. We can't say, no, we absolutely know, because we absolutely did not know many things. But I think the, the, the science communicators actually for the most part, did exactly the right thing, for which there's some good evidence, which is you tell people what we do know, you tell people what we don't know, and you tell people what we're going to do to address the don't knows. And by doing that, clearly, I mean, our evidence would suggest that that has been, at least within the UK, a successful strategy in so much as people's trust really has gone up. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Speaking of the society, we've got a few things to draw your attention to from the Genetic Society that are coming up over the next fortnight. Four times a year, the Society's training grant can cover up to £1,200 towards travel, accommodation and registration fees if there's a genetics-related training course that would help with your research. The deadline for this quarter's training grant is midnight on the 15th of February. And the 20th of February is the deadline to sign up for the Communicating Your Science Workshop, which is a three-day residential course for PhD students and postdocs to learn about science writing, public talks, demos and online video. Kat and I both run workshops on the course, so if you like how we tell science stories, you can learn how we do it. As always, you can find links with more information in our show notes at geneticsunzipped.com or directly on the Genetic Society's website on genetics.org.uk. And now, back to our interview with Professor Lawrence Hurst. I kind of want to think about what 
all of your findings as a whole means for people. So to start off with what it means for media and journalists in terms of addressing the public, because one line from your paper talking about seeking out balanced views, the journalists should not mistake confidence with competence. Yes, this I think is absolutely right. If you look at many of the polemicists, the Alex Jones of this world, for example, by which I don't mean the woman who's on the one show, I mean the, the American who's been sued left, right and centre. What they do is they very deliberately come over as extraordinarily confident. So one of the things that we get here is confidence is a predictor of extreme negative or extreme positive uh, viewpoints, but is not necessarily a good predictor of competence within the subject itself. So yes, I think it, it does behove the folks like the BBC to make sure that when they're having people on that not only do they speak with confidence but they speak with authority and they know of what they speak. If you're an academic, a researcher, someone in the field of genetics, how would you take the findings of your research here and apply that so that we can not just be telling people the facts as we were discussing before? How do you think that those people should share their science in a way that's most effective based on your findings? So this isn't our research, but these tricks of relating first up what the consensus is seems to be very helpful. There's actually some evidence that relating evidence is actually destructive because for every bit of evidence, somebody clever will find a bit of counter evidence, you know. So for consensus science, telling people consensus, building trust is never going to be too, too bad a thing. I mean, even this study which showed that building trust had an effect on the vaccine uptake, they still concluded that in the long term, it's probably better that you are open and you do build trust so the next time, you know, you can be a trusted voice. So gaining trust, and part of gaining trust, I think, was, that now this is for uncertain science, to be upfront about what we do know, what we don't know, and what we're doing to find out about it. So I think it depends upon whether you're talking about really accepted science that you're trying to communicate, or right at the cutting edge where we really don't know, and trying to ply the line, no, no, we really do know this. It's not going to help, because when it turns out that you didn't know it, you're a bad spokesman, trust overall in science would go down. And as you said at the start, highlighting that you're from a university as opposed to from a society. That's such a tiny little change that people can make. It turns out to be a tiny but very powerful change. If you're seen as being at all possibly partial, your trust calculation goes down straight away. As a person who's not a researcher, not an academic, but is trying to change the mind of maybe a family member who doesn't want to get the vaccine or, you know, you have sat down for Sunday lunch and suddenly a topic about GM comes up. For those people, how can we best change minds? Okay, so one thing we know that won't change minds is to take them on straight up, force them to defend their attitude. As soon as you do that, we know from lots of experimental evidence that just simply puts them in the corner, uh, backs you up and they become more defensive. And so brains shut down at that point. So there are a number of strategies that uh, appear to be quite helpful. Here we're talking about vaccine hesitants, not vaccine deniers, I might add. The, these are two different kettles of fish. The vaccine hesitants are, are simply that, they're vaccine hesitant and can be convinced. Vaccine deniers, this is conspiracy theory and 
As far as I'm aware, no one's found a mass method to get around conspiracy theories because every conspiracy theory has as a last recourse, you would be telling me that, wouldn't you, because you're an expert. But if you want to have a conversation with vaccine-hesitant people, then quietly listen to what their concerns are rather than putting them into a corner. And it's perfectly valid to ask, you know, what are your concerns? What would address those concerns? And listen and ask and don't tell. That's easier said than done. It is. Yes, yes. In many regards, it's just normal human communication. I mean, how would you feel if somebody tried to batter you over the head with a particular set of opinions telling you that these are the opinions that you ought to have? So I think try and put yourself in their position. Why are they being hesitant? What are the fears that they have here? It is not uncommon that human brains look at the risks much more than they see the benefits. Human brains are really bad at, um, you know, this tiny risk compared to this massive benefit. Particularly, there's a temporal aspect as well, because there's some evidence that a, a tiny risk now measures more on people's brains than a possible benefit in the future. The real difficulty with communicating with human brains is we, we suck up risks and we suck up dangers. So some people have suggested you play with that and you go with what the downsides would be of not having the vaccine. What are the risks of, of that? And so you, you're balancing two sets of risks. Now, which one is the more important one? And finally, what do you think is the most important thing to come out of this research? Well, the most original thing is no one had noticed before that extreme self-confidence is found at both ends of the distribution. So extreme self-confidence is found, but not warranted for the most part, for those who are objecting to science, but it's also found amongst those who are highly in favour of science. And the neutrals are, they know they don't know. And that is actually an important contribution, I would hope at least, to this debate, because no one's ever really asked about the natural history of the people who uh, accept science. And the people who accept science, for the most part, they seem to know science and they seem to accept it possibly because they know it. In the very biggest perspective, I think the world faces a serious dilemma. And that serious dilemma is we can't talk meaningfully to each other. And for something like climate change, for example, where this is an impending threat to humanity, if we can't communicate clearly, such that people actually understand the science and understand how serious these things are, then we're in a problem. And this is a fundamentally question about science communication. And we desperately need to know, and I mean desperately, we need to do this fast, to know how do we properly communicate science, potentially to audiences that are sceptical of the science. That was Professor Lawrence Hurst from the University of Bath, and you can find a link to the paper in PLOS Biology we were just discussing on our website at geneticsunzipped.com. All of the new findings that Lawrence and I were discussing came out of a large survey of over 2,000 adults in the UK, asking questions about their attitudes and understanding of genetics and science more broadly. What's unusual for this kind of research is that it was commissioned by the Genetic Society itself, which, as listeners of this podcast will definitely know, is one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. Professor Anne Ferguson-Smith is the current president of the Genetic Society, as well as being the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research and the Arthur Balfour Professor of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. 
She's clearly a very busy person, but thankfully she had some time to chat with me about why it was important for the Genetic Society to conduct their own research on the public understanding of genetics and what it means for the society going forward. Why did the society choose to do this research? Because I don't know if it's a common thing. Do learned societies normally commission their own research? No, so actually it was a new thing for us. And we did it because we've become quite interested in how the public think about genetics as a discipline and how we contribute to engaging with the public. There's a lot of information out there now and our access to that information and its relevance in particular during the pandemic really, I think, engaged people and was utilised by people as they tried to understand more about the pandemic. So we thought that it was actually timely to really reach out and see what was going on out there in the public, what they were thinking about, how much they knew, how much they didn't know, how much they thought they knew and did and how much they thought they knew and didn't. Why is it important for the society to do research like this? Should more learned societies be conducting research? I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I suspect that if you had asked our society 10 years ago about whether this was their role, the answer might have been different, actually. I think we are increasingly wanting to reach out and bring into science people who might not have thought that science was for them in the past. And We are natural enthusiasts. We are highly motivated. We think this stuff is great. And when we talk to people about it, scientists and non-scientists, they think it's great too, actually. So we really should not underestimate how much the public is interested in this. And this is not, you know, trying to encourage the public to do high-level research in this space. Genetics is something that touches all kinds of, of aspects of society today. And people with some understanding of genetics can bring it to a wide range of disciplines and jobs and careers and their own personal lives. So educating people on genetics is not just for a career in genetics. And I think that all people in all walks of life can understand and apply genetics in a range of contexts. I mean, there were so many findings from the survey that you did. I suppose the two that I would pick out is that one, actually, people are really interested in genetics, especially now since the pandemic. But just generally, a lot of people are interested in hearing about genetics. But also, there is this small minority of people who think they know about genetics, have negative attitudes towards it. But it turns out that actually, maybe they don't quite have the science factually correct. How Do you think going forward, members of the society, so people who are themselves geneticists, how do you think they should take on board these findings? So, first of all, genetics is a compelling subject because actually it's very personal. You look to yourself and your family to learn more about yourself and your family, both in this generation and in subsequent generations. So so it invokes a natural curiosity. In terms of the small number of people who are very confident that they know things or they think they know things and they actually don't. That was very interesting for us. As you know, that was one of the key findings of the paper. And of course, many of those people have strong views about what they know and communicate those on social media uh, and elsewhere, take anti-vaxxers, for example. So I think that really we have a responsibility as geneticists to 
help provide evidence-based information that is accessible to people so that they can really make informed choices and informed decisions and have informed evidence-based perspectives so that those who want to communicate loudly can do it with the facts in front of them. What it did strike home to me was it reminded me how important it was to recognise that when we hear both sides of a conversation in a public forum debate, that those are not necessarily balanced in terms of the numbers of people that they represent. I think that's really important. We assume that when media want to portray a balanced argument, they are balancing it because 50% of the population think this and the other 50% think that. We never have the numbers in front of us that actually say, well, it's a tiny proportion with a really loud voice who feels strongly in this direction, balanced against a majority voice who are actually have their feet firmly planted on the ground, know what they're talking about and have a perspective that may be different. It is important that we listen to those differences and we understand those differences of opinion, but we have to recognise that they're underpinned, often underpinned by different numbers. I think that's important because we hear a lot of negative stuff. It's actually quite stressful and angst-ridden and does create challenges in our you know day-to-day lives. I mean, we could, you know, we could sit and be really miserable uh, the whole time, but actually often those perceptions are based on perhaps incorrect information. They're not always underpinned by facts, and it's a small number of, of misinformed people who are making those noises. That's all for now. Thanks to Professors Lawrence Hurst and Anne Ferguson-Smith. We'll be back next time taking a look at the rather ominously named Variants of Unknown Significance for Rare Disease Day and what you can and can't learn from genetic testing. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your ratings and reviews help push our podcast to the top of people's recommendations. Plus, Kat and I just really enjoy hearing what you think about the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetic Society, which, as you know by now, is one of the oldest learner societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.